0: Welcome back to Not Another Mummy podcast. I'm Alison Perry, and you're listening to episode thirty-five. Today's guest is Rebecca Schiller, a mum of two and doula who is also chief executive of Birth Rights, the Human Rights Childbirth Charity. In all that spare time that she must have, Rebecca has written a book your no guilt pregnancy plan and it covers the huge shifts happening in your relationships your body your work and your emotional life during pregnancy it's straight talking easy to digest and it's got lots of practical tools tips and real stories to help you make a flexible plan for pregnancy birth and life as a new mum i'm currently 20 weeks pregnant so i found it a really useful chat but hopefully you'll find it interesting whether you're pregnant or not Welcome Rebecca to the podcast. Thank you. I'm really, really happy to have you on today. So you're a mum of two, you're a doula. Um, I always feel really inadequate when I read people's um, like what who they are and what they do because it's always so impressive. So you're a mum of two, you're a doula, you're the CEO of Birthrights and you're the author of Your No Guilt Pregnancy Plan.
1: Yeah, I'm also really bad at maths. I've got a very messy bedroom and I'm actually still wearing bits of yesterday's makeup because okay. I didn't have time to take them off. That so does me, that make you feel Yes. Better? Do you know what? It genuinely does. Okay. So thank you. Thank you. Um, so as a doula, um, how many women have you supported throughout pregnancy and birth over the years? I should totally know that number. Um, it's probably somewhere between 40 and 60. So... Um, One of the things that's really different about the kind of support a doula provides is you can't support that many women in a year because you need to be available to them for a month around their due date and and you need not to have... Five women who might go into labour at the same time. Okay, so you so, have to kind of pick and choose what you take on yeah. work wise. So the idea is that, you know, and also sometimes you you don't want to be on call. So being on call is just the most intense, intense experience. You can't go that far from your house, you obviously can't have a drink, you need backup childcare 24 hours a day. Like if my husband's away, I need to have someone staying in the house. So it's when I was working a lot as a doula in London, I did kind of. Um, do kind of 15 or so births a year and that that's just that's a bit that was a bit much actually so I've I've scaled back now and, and I just do it really occasionally so I can provide really really kind of intensive support and I just know that if someone calls me I'm Ready to go. <laughs> yeah. um,
0: so, for anyone listening who might not be aware of what a doula, what your job would entail, yeah. do you want to just explain? So, if I was to, as, as a pregnant lady, yeah. if I was to bring you up and say, "I want to book you as my doula," what would you do for me?
1: So, um, lots. Doula's work in different ways, and some doula's focus mainly on supporting women and their families through pregnancy, birth, and just those first you know few days afterwards, and some focus just on the postnatal period, which you know is coming in and doing everything from cooking to holding the baby while you sleep, but also being someone to listen. That's that's the role, I think, of any doula, is, is being um, a kind of non-judgmental uh, expert, um, maybe expert's the wrong word, experienced support. So I would meet you um, regularly through um, your pregnancy. Any questions you felt, Silly to ask anybody else. Um, we'd also do some work together on kind of hopes and fears, and working out things around what a good birth and a good introduction to motherhood, if it was your first baby, looked like, so that you felt really ready and prepared. Um, sometimes I go to appointments if someone's got a really, you know, having a, a difficult pregnancy, or or they're finding it difficult to get the kind of right support, just to be there, often just as like a sort of comfort blanket in the corner, or to say. Do you remember you were going to ask about that thing that you've now immediately forgotten because you've come into the room? Or to sometimes say, um, "Did you, do you? Did you understand? Do you understand what's happening? Do you?" Because it can be quite difficult yeah. when you're hearing these words for the first time. Yeah. And then um, Adula will go on call for you um, two or three weeks before your estimated due date, so that you could call me when you felt labour might be starting we'd often stay in touch a bit by phone and text usually saying why don't you just pretend it's not happening and <laughs> go for a walk mm. and then would usually come to your house and be with you in the kind of early bits of labour um, helping you decide when to go to hospital when to call the midwife if you're having a home birth and to provide kind of Whatever the gap is, sometimes people's partners are really amazing physical support. They're saying all the right things. Actually, you just need someone to make tea and carry bags and remember to take the notes and that kind of thing. Or if actually that's the role your partner's doing, you need someone to breathe with you. And particularly those bits where labour goes up a gear and, and you might be struggling to remember what was helping you cope. That's the point where a doula can be really useful to kind of remind you of your coping techniques, suggest different positions. And then usually I would be there immediately afterwards, often like help people have a shower, quite a lot of washing women's feet, which I find that's one of the things I really kind of like doing afterwards. You know, feet get a bit grubby often yeah. in birth and, and it, you're feeling a bit wobbly. So having someone that by this point you feel so comfortable with there to do that, make sure that you've, um, you've had something to eat. If it's at home, change all the beds and and help you a little bit with, feeding whoever you're going to feed your baby from those kind of questions about that and then come back a few times afterwards um and be at the end of the phone for those questions that never feel urgent enough for a medical opinion but the should the baby be feeding every hour is every hour and a half all right and i can't remember you know uh, how to you know find you know the the nappies that I need I can't remember to put them on or you know we're worried about sleep which one of us should sleep first how can we sleep in shifts and all those kind of things and complaining about in-laws that's a huge part of my job <laughs> so you always need someone to complain to oh. about your in-laws or your own family not my in-laws if they're listening by the way they're they're amazing I remember but... you saying earlier they were the best in-laws <laughs> ever um so there's been no complaining <laughs> yeah, but that other women who are less fortunate in their (laughs) in-laws like to complain about them quite a lot because actually when you've got a new baby everyone's got an opinion about how you should do it yeah and that's one of the nice things about being a doula I I have no opinion about how you should do things I just want the people that I work with to work it out for themselves but to have a kind of you know giant pair of hands around them kind of holding them waiting to catch them if they have wobbly moments and to say like you can do this yeah
0: that must be such a rewarding job like, yeah. do you just feel like I'm the most amazing giving person in the world? I'm supporting all these women.
1: <laughs> like seriously, it must be amazing. It is amazing. It's a real it's a real um gift. And I know people talk about it's an it's an honour to do but it really is an honour to be invited into those kind of really intimate moments and a responsibility not to kind of um abuse that privilege and and, and influence people unduly and, and it's really intense. And you know sometimes people have really difficult journeys, and you're on that journey with them and 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 it's it's not the kind of thing where it's important to have boundaries, but actually those boundaries are pretty permeable, especially when you're a parent yourself and you've been through it so it's it's quite a it can be quite a draining mm, job but also incredibly rewarding and I'm still in touch with so many of the women and families that I've supported over the years, and some of them some of the the women that I have in their doula we realized at some point in the relationship like after this when we've sort of finished the professional bit we're obviously going to be friends <laughs> and, so uh, nice. yeah and and that's that's really lovely as well um, and you mentioned um a minute ago
0: you mentioned the gap that exists that you're kind of almost like filling that gap um what's your take on the level of care that is available to women via the nhs at the moment
1: i think you know it it can be patchy um and so you know the, the other work that I, I do running the charity, we're, we're very involved with NHS England and with midwives and doctors and work really collaboratively with them. And I know how many incredible examples of care there are and how many wonderful services and innovative teams, you know, case-loading women. But actually, it's really stretched. Um, and midwives and doctors are often working under really stressful conditions. There's lots of evidence that if, if you're not treated very well at work, You might not be able to offer the kind of compassionate, supportive care that you'd like to. And so women can find themselves left alone too much in labour or that they have very, very short appointments. And, you know, it's just about weighing, measuring blood pressure, blood tests. And there's no space for someone who maybe has had a difficult birth before to say, I'm really worried about how this baby's going to come out this Mm -hmm. time. Um, So... Yeah, I, I think it's patchy, and that, that it's really important that we kind of strive to make things a bit more equal, so that every woman knows she's going to get really good support through her pregnancy.
0: Um, and obviously, it's all well and good having things like NCT classes or other antenatal classes or doula services um, to top up that extra info. But for many people, that's not an affordable option. Mm. So, what should people do if you know they feel like they're getting the bare minimum from the NHS, but really feel like they want more support?
1: Yeah. So there are um there are doula schemes that are available community doula schemes um and there are a couple of NHS trusts which are now kind of employing doulas on specific projects but Doula UK the umbrella organisation has an access fund so for um women on low incomes who or who are in particularly um challenging circumstances they can get doula support um without having to pay wow. and the expenses are covered by um a fund um so that's an option um but i think also um finding um someone that you can talk to at your hospital if you're not getting the right support so a head of midwifery is often a really good person to talk to they there's always a clinic with longer slots longer appointments you just have to find out the way to get into it sometimes it's the v clinic okay. um chance to talk about birth options sometimes there's a um a birth reflection service talk about previous births but there's always a senior midwife who's got half an hour or hour long appointments um and so asking your midwife if you can be referred to someone for a bit more time and to discuss that and if you actually feel like the standard care you're getting isn't isn't good enough it's not meeting your needs you're being not given the right information then um the charity that i run off is an advice service so you can you can get um, free advice um, around kind of what you're entitled to, um, support if you need to kind of give feedback or make a complaint. Um, and um, sometimes we write to NHS Trust on behalf of women using some um, of our slightly scary sounding legal language, which is always <laughs> good. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we have a sort of carrot and stick approach, you know, work really collaboratively with midwives and doctors there on our board, but actually sometimes it's important to to um talk to the trust in um, slightly scary terms that that might get them to sit up and listen and think actually we can't withdraw this service or we can't insist that women do this um it's not lawful
0: yeah so that charity is
1: birthrights um isn't it yes tell me a bit about that and what your role is there so the idea behind it it was sort of a kitchen table idea um between um so uh, i met an amazing human rights barrister elizabeth praska who is now the legal director of the equalities and human rights commission so she's oh. really clever mm. um <laughs> and we have children exactly the same age we lived at that point in the same part of london and we met because she was she had supported some women who'd had the home birth service just arbitrarily withdrawn weeks before they were due to give birth and she wrote to the trust explaining why this wasn't okay and they immediately provided independent midwives to cover the women who weren't um, able to access that service and then reinstated the service and she called me because I was a local doula and did I have anybody in in this position and I did one of my clients who was really terrified of giving birth and she decided she could either have an elective cesarean or a home birth and she spent a long time thinking about it and decided a home birth was what she wanted, and then a couple of weeks before her due date, they withdrew the service. It was too late to book an elective cesarean, oh, no. she was terrified. And thanks to Elizabeth's support, she was provided with these brilliant independent midwives and had a really, really positive experience. So we got to thinking and talking, and Elizabeth said, Actually, I'm starting to do more and more of this work, I think it should have an organisational home, I'm going to set up this charity. And so I came on board as um, sort of co chair with her, and it just sort of grew very quickly we thought it would be a website and a couple of bits of advice but quite quickly we were being asked to um, provide training to midwives and doctors Um, so we do that now that's a big part of our work Um, going into NHS trusts talking about how using human rights principles the kind of soft values that really resonate with people because they're about treating individuals with respect and listening to them and making sure they're in charge of their decisions about how those can improve care but also if necessary how the legal framework um, insists that that's provided so as public servants all midwives and doctors have an obligation to uphold their human rights duties and sometimes they haven't been given very good training on it so we can explain to them what what those duties are and they often then go back to their managers and say you know, I'm, we're not working in an environment that allows us to uphold these obligations that we're, mm. you know, we are legally obliged to do. Yeah. So we we started doing training and then we got interested in finding out more. So we now do research. So we, we do research into what the barriers are to kind of safe, equal, non-discriminatory care. So we've been doing some research on disabled women's experiences in maternity care. And we're doing a project at the moment with a really amazing organisation called Birth Companions who support women pregnant and having babies in prison and also in um, women who are facing the most kind of severe and multiple interrelated disadvantages. So women whose voices are not heard, who don't have the opportunity to feed into the way that maternity services are built. And so we're working with some of some of those women who've used birth companion services um, to um, do some research and find out what the issues are and then we can work out how how we begin to solve them and then we we now do quite a bit of policy work so we try and take all that learning from the training from the advice we provide to women from the research and go back to the people making the big decisions about maternity care and say actually you have to have these women's voices in the mix yeah you know these are the issues um, and don't just rely on us let's get the women that we're we're talking to into the room with you and 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 allow them to be part of the decision making process um so then we've got a small team of staff um and i um i mean i always feel a bit uncomfortable saying i'm chief executive because i don't feel like a chief executive i feel you know like a bit of an idiot (laughs) um but but it it, it's you know it's my job to, to to run the organization and to kind of you know do some of the big meetings speak to the media and try and offer that kind of unbiased comment in the media that often doesn't exist when we talk about women and mothers and women's bodies and their decisions
0: yeah that sounds incredible um i'd like to just bring us back to the fact you've got a really messy house you're wearing yesterday's makeup yeah just just yeah. to kind
1: of you know balance off Absolutely. all of that incredible work that <laughs> you are doing with birthright yeah and um, you should you should see the state of the backs of my <laughs> kitchen cupboards I'm really grumpy quite a lot of the time I'm really impatient Great. um
0: <laughs> all good um, and you wrote recently for the pool you mentioned that you are a bit of a spokesperson in the media um from mothers and birth but you wrote for the pool recently um, about pregnancy and alcohol didn't you yes um, and you spoke about how you disagree with the current government advice of avoiding alcohol
1: altogether you got a bit of a backlash
0: for that didn't you
1: well i it's not the first time we've spoken about alcohol and so I was waiting for it in fact it was the first line of the piece in the pool said you know I of anything I've ever written about and I've, I write quite a lot about difficult topics topics that other people find difficult like abortion Um, but the thing that really gets people going is the thought of a pregnant woman drinking alcohol why is that? It's really interesting, isn't it? <laughs> so they, they did some research. There's a really interesting um, uh, academic group at, uh, in Kent who did some research um, and they looked at a study about social attitudes towards sort of hated groups. And pregnant women who drink alcohol were more hated than fathers who abandoned their children completely. No. Um, cr- various kinds of criminals, um, drug addicts. <gasps> It's really interesting. So people have quite an irrational reaction to pregnant women drinking alcohol. And I feel like I don't disagree necessarily with, with some of the guidance, but I disagree with the way that we've presented this picture that drinking alcohol in pregnancy is very dangerous and ha- definitely harms your baby. And that if you do it, you must be irresponsible and a bad mother. I think that's reinforced by those terrible signs on the back of beer bottles with the pregnant woman with a cross through her, yeah. which enrages me. So, I just think women can be trusted with evidence-based information. And so, the evidence around drinking and pregnancy, it's not super robust because you can't do a randomised controlled trial and put you know a thousand pregnant women and get five hundred of them to swig bottles of vodka wouldn't be ethical. So um, no one's ever going to have the absolute finite answer to the question about what amount of alcohol is safe. But there have been some big studies and no one's ever found any harm from light drinking in pregnancy. And so I think women should know that because quite a lot of women don't know they're pregnant for a while and they drink and then they're terrified. And we work with another organisation called BPAS who have quite a lot of women um, asking for termination for pregnancies that might be a surprise but actually they wanted mm. because they're worried about the alcohol they drank so that message isn't particularly safe and helpful to women i think um and actually at the other end of the spectrum we do know that if you drink very heavily in binges or um regularly in pregnancy um you're you're growing fetus has something around a you know eight to twelve percent chance of developing fetal alcohol spectrum disorder which is a range of conditions that can be very very serious or or, or mild um, but also that's it's really related to women's um, other lifestyle so okay. women who don't have very much money who have poor diets who um, might have really difficult lives are much more likely to have babies who end up with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder it's a condition that's not really understood and I think it's really easy to point a finger at all women and say don't drink alcohol you bad bad women but actually I always want to move to a place where we're looking at why women would be drinking heavily and actually trying to sort out some of the other things in their lives you know make sure that they do have enough money to buy good good food um, and to support them and if a woman is really really abusing alcohol in, in pregnancy she's got some really big issues in her life and a sign of a pregnant woman with a cross through it is not going to stop her drinking no but it is going to contribute to a climate where pregnant women don't feel like their bodies are their own and they don't get to make decisions so I'm absolutely not saying you should you know finish this conversation and have five shots of tequila <laughs> but, <laughs> but I, I I think as a pregnant woman you just deserve to have the information and the trust yeah and that's I think what's important trusting women to work things out and and when we make excellent decisions for their children like the vast majority of
0: the time it's so true cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue also you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states united healthcare short-term insurance plans underwritten by golden rule insurance company offer flexible budget-friendly coverage for you learn more at uh1.com To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Today's episode of Not Another Mummy podcast is sponsored by Neurofen for Children, Fever Smart, a brand new, innovative way to monitor your little one's temperature. Fever Smart has a silicon adhesive patch which you stick under your child's armpit and which sends information about their temperature to a connected smart device once a minute which means that you can monitor their temperature from the app on your smartphone without waking them up. It is so clever. I don't know about you, but when my daughter has a fever, it can be pretty stressful, even more so when she was a baby. I remember assessing my alarm every couple of hours through the night to take her temperature. We put one of those in-ear thermometers, which beeps and would, of course, wake her up. Fever Smart makes things so much easier because I can check her temperature without even leaving my own bed. Fever Smart is priced at eighty four ninety nine and available now from Boots, Amazon and at newfnforchildren.co.uk slash Fever Smart, where you can currently get 30% off until August the 4th with the code Fever Smart, Not Another Mummy Blogger 30. That's Fever Smart, Not Another Mummy Blogger 30. So go and check it out. And when you do, remember, always read the instructions. And thank you again to Neurofen for Children, Fever Smart, for supporting the podcast. Um, Okay, so your book, Your No Guilt Pregnancy Plan, um, what made you want to write it? Because you're obviously doing quite a lot as it is to support pregnant women and mothers. So what made you think we need this book?
1: Yeah, I just wasn't tired enough. So I (laughs) thought I should do something else. Um, I really found that... um, there wasn't anything which prepared women for the experience of transitioning from not being a mother to being a mother, which is can be such a profound thing that it affects so many parts of your life. Mm-hmm. Um, and pre- pregnancy and birth preparation tends to focus very much on what you should be doing and what you should be eating and what you will be feeling in quite a rigid way. And then often quite a goal oriented birth type of preparation. And I felt there's so much missing in that. You know, we know that mental health is so important um, in pregnancy and birth. It's the time in your life when you are most likely to have mental illness um, either be triggered for the first time or... Um, to something that you've had before to, to start again. And why isn't that talked about
0: much? I mean, we, we talk so much about postnatal depression, yeah. but we don't talk about antenatal depression. It's yeah. really, it feels like it's not a subject that is talked about much. Why is that? It's,
1: I don't know the answer to that question, but I think we're still really weird about pregnant women. I mean, I think society has a really strange relationship with women in general, women's bodies, and there's something about pregnancy that, that really makes women feel... Um, quite othered from the rest rest of the world yeah. and we don't sort of deal with their issues and I, I I know we there could be I could write a whole I could spend years researching that I'm sure it's got you know lots to do with with sort of historical attitudes and and also fear and worry and um but but the yeah we don't talk about those things enough and we also don't we're not very good at having complicated conversations around motherhood so we're very good at having We know about postnatal depression, so that ticks the mental health box. But actually, women are all different. And I'd like to move to a point where we can have conversations where we can accept we do things differently and that we have different experiences and that's really valued and I think part of talking about antenatal depression is 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 part of that saying that you know some women do have that
0: well you said experience. in the book that one in ten women experience mental health issues that start during pregnancy yeah.
1: that's huge yeah, that's
0: considering absolutely. we're not talking about it yeah that's a lot of women yeah. experiencing something that they feel isn't part of the
1: conversation absolutely and one in five women will have a, a mental health issue start in the perinatal period, so during pregnancy, birth, and afterwards. So that's a huge number of women. If you think it's over 600,000 women who give birth in England every year, yeah. you know, that's masses and masses. But mental health is still a conversation that people um, find difficult to have. Um, and, um, and and conversations about women are still difficult to have, and pregnant women. So it's, it's not surprising it's taking us a while to get there. And I suppose I wanted to write something that felt like it would be useful for as many women as possible. Ideally, I would like every single woman, no matter her circumstances, no matter how many babies she's had, to recognise herself in the book and find something in there that's useful. And to, to begin to turn thinking not just to what you need to buy and having the perfect birth, but actually some of the difficult things around your relationships with your partner, your sex life, your work life how it might change, how you feel about your family, your own parents, and those kind of things, those big things that have an impact on our well-being. But nobody talks about them because they're just too difficult, On yeah. there, Yeah, no. <laughs> um, and
0: why do you think guilt plays such a large part in pregnancy and motherhood? Well,
1: I think it kind of goes back to this, the things we were talking about with the alcohol question. So um, there's a kind of culture around just not really trusting pregnant women. And having an opinion about what they do. And it sort of feels like the world thinks that it has a stake in this future baby. That this is the future. And that, that therefore everybody should be entitled. Yeah, have, that's uh, so true. You know, everyone wants to tell you what you should do, what you shouldn't do. Yeah. Give you that piece of advice that yeah. might just make your, your baby the best baby ever. Mm. Um, so you're, you're on a losing streak because you're never gonna, you're never gonna achieve all those things, and and you're never gonna agree with everybody, and you're gonna do things differently, and there's always somebody. Whatever you do, some of the things I found really interesting. You know, I had particular experiences, I made particular choices, and I found that not everybody was okay with me. I had my kids at home, and I, I had various bumpy breastfeeding journeys, but I ended up breastfeeding them for a long time, and people we're definitely judgmental about that
0: people always have an opinion about breastfeeding don't
1: okay. they yeah <laughs> but also people are just as judgmental if you make completely the opposite choice. oh yeah so it's impossible to make a choice yeah. that someone doesn't think is the wrong choice so you end up feeling guilty whatever you do and i think just trying to take that out and, and and be honest about that and and to take the power away from from the rest of the world's opinion and to make sure that women know that actually the only thing that matters is what what feels right to them and they will screw it up yeah and that's fine because we all screw it up regularly.
0: Do you think that there is some sort of level of guilt that mothers feel that fathers don't? Um, is, is there some kind of biological connection that you have with this child that means that not only are you trying to make the right decisions for yourself mm. and perhaps feeling guilty about those, but also for the first time, if it's your first child, yeah. for the first time ever, you are responsible for this other human being and
1: you've got absolutely so the experience of becoming a parent as a woman if you've got if you are the pregnant woman is a is a different one to to um to your partner you have this baby inside you and what you do and you know an experience has an has an impact um often less of an impact than we might be be concerned about but it, it does so absolutely pregnancy comes with this extra level of responsibility um And that you know, almost all women are absolutely capable of meeting. But afterwards, I think that's it's an interesting one. I wonder how much of how, and I know as as a as a woman, I often feel I worry about things more than my husband. I think about, you know, my daughter's chipped her tooth, her front tooth, her adult tooth, and my husband isn't worried about it, and I'm worried about it because she's going to have a chip, chip tooth, um, and. I wonder how much of that is just a natural, because you've been so connected to that baby, and how much of it is just that women, that's women's role at the moment. We're supposed to care for all this stuff, and it actually takes quite a bit of effort to shift some of that responsibility onto onto your partner. So I think it's a mixture, but absolutely, you know, as a pregnant woman, you're having a completely different experience of this pregnancy to anybody else.
0: Yeah, um, okay, so we talked a bit about um, the partner, and you mentioned earlier on that sometimes, as a doula, you step in and do things that the partner, perhaps, isn't. Um, yeah, how important is the non-pregnant partner's role during pregnancy? Um, you know, are there things that they could be doing that the you know someone listening could be encouraging them to do? But also, is there is there like an extra level of patience that the pregnant person could be having? I find myself getting really frustrated. With my husband, so I'm 20 weeks pregnant at the moment. Um, and I find myself getting really annoyed that I'm the one whose like whole life has had to alter. It's so unreasonable, it's such an unreasonable annoyance to have. Yeah. Um, but you know, I'm the one who physically has to deal with this pregnancy and um, you know, change my whole life, you know, in terms of planning things around my physical capabilities yeah. or hospital appointments yeah. and my husband's just merrily carrying yeah. on day to day
1: that doesn't sound like an unreasonable going to annoyance. The pub. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and I'm realizing this is something that I have to deal with rather than actually you know vocalize to him um you know so on both sides are there things that we could be doing
1: relationship wise to have a smooth journey through pregnancy I I think those conversations are really important and people will have them differently in different relationships. But I, I feel like it's just should be OK for and, and actually is really important for couples to make space to talk about the emotional impact of pregnancy. And so, yeah, lots of women feel like that, that this is happening to me and I'm having to maybe give up work or find myself saving money for my maternity leave. And yeah, my body's changing. And, 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 and at the end of it, you'll get a baby. <laughs> And I'll get a baby too, but I'll also get loads of stretch marks and, yeah. you know, my pelvic floor will be weakened. And your
0: hormones are all over the place.
1: <laughs> so talk about it. And yeah, as a partner, you know, it would be nice if, if you could think, think of ways to make, make things easier. And, you know, are there sacrifices you need your partner to make so that you fit, you know, do you need them not to go to the pub, you know, because maybe not going to the pub isn't as big a deal as being pregnant with twins, so. yeah. <laughs> you know, so I think having those conversations and working out a way that together you can minimize those problems, and also talking about what it's going to be like afterwards, so particularly I think if it's your first baby. Um, or perhaps if you're pregnant with twins, you know the, the the life impact stuff. You know, how what are your what are your attitudes going to be to parenting? Are you going to find suddenly that you've got a partner who had quite a draconian upbringing and is going to insist on really really strict parenting styles, whereas you grew up on a commune and you're all for letting them run barefoot? Have those conversations yeah. before.
0: I think that's really. I, I, read, I read that but that point in your book and I thought it really hit home with me that actually that's a conversation that so many people don't have yeah. before having their first child mm. is how is parenting styles and, mm. you, and you don't want to have that conversation in the middle of you, you don't want to end up having an argument because you're both disagreeing over something. Because parenting you're tired and
1: because you're tired yeah. and and you've now done it differently and you're sort of undermining each other. You know, I think making we're not good at, you know, we're not encouraged necessarily to have those open conversations in relationships. And if your partner's a man, you know, they haven't been encouraged for their whole lives to have those open conversations, but I've put some tips in the book about how to start those conversations. And I think that's it. And I think also partners can feel like they can't contribute. Mm -hmm. that There's nothing they can do, particularly in labor and birth. And there's so much they can do. This is the person who knows you best, who usually loves you the most and who you love. They are the, ultimate person to support you through this um in in the different ways that your relationship you know will, will make that happen
0: um okay so if you're pregnant for the first time how are you supposed to know what kind of birth you want there's so much emphasis placed on you must you know rethink about what kind of you want home birth and a natural birth do you want drugs um you know how do you feel about c-sections you know all there's so many options available yeah. to us
1: these days yeah. Um, how how are you supposed to know what, what is right for you? So, I mean, no one's ever gonna know in advance what's gonna be perfect. So you've just gotta make the best stab at it, I think. Um, and one of the exercises I've put in the book is about working out what relaxes you and what stresses you. So instead of starting with do I want a home birth, you start with as a person, what kind of environments, what kind of sounds, smells, people, what do I do? if I have period pain, what do I do? Do I want to take loads of painkillers and have loads of support around me? Or am I the kind of person that goes into the bath, shuts the door and wants everyone to leave me alone? That gives you really helpful information about what the way that you react to situations. And it also helps you with choosing your birth partner. If on the stress list it's, you know, my husband does this, my husband does that, my mother does this... If they're on the stress, like maybe they don't need, maybe they're not the right people to support you. Yeah. So I start with that rather than starting with these decisions that you've never had the experience of, that you have no idea about, start with you and what you know about you, and and then use that to begin the basis of a conversation with your with your midwife about your particular situation and what's recommended. And then that then that gives you a basis. Um, and some women make decisions to have a different birth from the one that's recommended and, and, and some feel very comfortable with, with the plan that's recommended. But you start with yourself and what you know about yourself because you actually have so much more expertise and information about you than you do about um, cesarean rates in your local mm. hospital. And I think that's the way to look at it. And also making a birth plan that, is, that has a plan B and a plan C. I'm working out, so we've got this thing that I always do with people that I'm working with, where you work out in a couple of sentences what a good birth means to you, aside from where it happens, aside from, you know, the type of birth it ends up being. And that's usually about people being kind to you and listening to you and giving you information. And you can make that happen wherever. And so the idea is to have a birth plan that can flex if circumstances flex, if you decide it's time to change your mind, but you still come out of that feeling um, like you've had... Um, uh, the best birth that you can have had in in those experience, you know, in that that context.
0: And how do you get that? How how would you suggest someone gets that balance between listening to medical professionals Mm -hmm. and listening to their gut instinct and having the confidence to speak up for themselves and say, this is what I want. Mm -hmm. Say if they're in the throes of labour and you have a midwife or someone standing over you saying, this is what we're going to do. Even if it's something as simple as, you know, um, someone's giving birth lying on their back and they know their instinct is to get up Mm -hmm. and they've got a midwife saying to them, no, you need to stay, you know, where
1: Mm -hmm. you are. Yeah. How do you get that balance? So I think it's important to know what what your rights are. Um, And um, there's a whole load of fact sheets on the Birthrights website and I've distilled them down in the book. So it's just powerful to know that, that if anybody tells you you have to lie down, you don't have to lie down. So... That's a good place to start, but also midwives and doctors have really important information and expertise. So it's trying to get to the get to the root of why this is being recommended and what alternatives are. So I do a bit of training with people and their partners because often in the throes of labour it needs to be your partner that's asking these questions and use this acronym that I didn't invent, um, the brain acronym. So you ask, what are the benefits of lying on my back, and what are the risks? Are there any alternatives to lying on my back? What do my instincts say and then I think the most useful question is what happens if I you know what happens if I do nothing so if it's I think we need to for example um it's been you've been pushing for an hour we need to you know take you to theater and do four sets the question about what what happens if we do nothing if it's well we could wait a bit longer the baby's fine mm. And, and then we monitor, and if, if something happens, if we're concerned, we'll let you know. That gives you really good information about how urgent the situation. If it's, well, the baby's heart rate is very low, and it could be quite a serious situation, and we're concerned about, then that gives you an you know that that gives you a good information. So when you've got that three dimensional picture, and you can also ask for time, mm. it's very rarely a, a, a real emergency, and you will know if it is. Um, then you ask for time, and you, you you can talk about it and make make that decision. Um, When you've got all the information, and and yeah, your partner, your birth partner, or, or your partner needs to be cued to to ask those questions and be trained to do that because if you're in the middle of a contraction um you can't it's the last thing you're going to be yeah your partner brain brain (laughs) i think you probably need to get your partner to write brain on the back of their hand i I had a couple who on the birth plan they wrote that the 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 top they had a little paragraph about who they were and what was important to them and at the end it said if we need to make decisions john will use his brain And it was just there to remind John, not his real name, to to do that. And it also started a conversation with the midwife. She's like, "What do you mean, John will use his brain?" She's like, "Oh, well, we're, we're trying to remember how to." Uh, uh. And so, of course, when it came to asking questions, she she was ready to give all of that information.
0: Yeah, that's so good. So it's all it's just about getting information, and then it, that helps yeah. you make a decision. That's really good. Um, okay, I have got some quick fire questions for you, Rebecca. Okay. Um, what was the last thing that you felt guilty about?
1: I feel guilty this week because I'm really busy and I'm hardly seeing my children mm. and I didn't get to go to my daughter's guitar assembly. Oh, no. And she is performing it again. Oh, good. Which, but I did get a slightly, I don't know, passive-aggressive message from the guitar teacher, which was probably a lovely message, but I was feeling guilty. You so read I into interpreted it. interpreted it as, you bad mother, you. So, <gasps> yeah, I'm trying to put that in a box. Yeah, that's the worst
0: thing. But, you know, we've all been there. I, I had to miss my daughter's last assembly um and yeah she really wasn't impressed she wasn't happy that work came before her assembly but it happens sometimes it doesn't
1: does. it no, no one no one has got got this 100 percent of the time yeah. um it's just a balance um, and it teaches kids good le- good lessons about life sure does saying. yeah it's really good for them to learn about disappointment absolutely that's an <laughs> that's a part of life we're just preparing them i love it and um, what was the last book that you read um, I've been reading this really amazing book by Alan Jenkins of the Observer Food magazine about his incredible life growing up um, in care and as a foster child mm-hmm. and learning to garden. And then um, I re- recently got into gardening and, and he, he flits between parts of his past life and also his, his present life I'm on an allotment in London. And it's extraordinary. Mm. Um, it does make you cry. I cried within about three seconds of opening the book. I was full on in, in tears because it's really, it's really, really amazing. It sounds
0: really moving. Um, okay. What's been your most
1: embarrassing
0: parenting moment? Uh,
1: accidentally getting my uh, then three-year-old daughter drunk at a private view and her weighing on a sculpture. <gasps> Tell me, how did this happen? <laughs> Um, my husband makes films about artists in the art world, so we'd gone to a private view. We didn't realise it was quite such a sort of sit-down lunch affair with speeches. So okay. So we'd taken the, the child. Yeah. Who started coughing during all the speeches. So um, I, was very, I knew we weren't quite welcome with her, so I took her to the back and just force-fed her two glasses of orange juice, which it turns out wasn't orange juice, it was something like vodka and orange juice. And then she got quite leery um, and I worked out what had happened and gave her lots of water and she went out into the the foyer where there was this amazing bead sculpture and um, weed on it, so yeah. At
0: least, I mean, as as horrifying as that must have been, it will give you an insight into what she'll be like when she is, you know, 17,
1: 18. Yeah, she's never being allowed to drink. (laughs) (laughs) It's never never happening. She was fine. She just drank lots of water and had a sleep and she was okay. But I now do check that innocuous glasses of orange juice aren't actually spiked yes. with, with vodka yeah
0: I give them to my children that's a good one to bring up on her wedding day or her 18th birthday party yeah or,
1: or on a podcast that's going to be broadcast <laughs> to, to people she'll thank you for that it's always good
0: <laughs> uh, Rebecca thank you so much for being my guest today it has been so lovely to talk to you um, I could go on for hours but I won't um <laughs> thank you very much oh it's been lovely thank you thanks to Rebecca and thank you as always to you for tuning in I hope you enjoyed this one please head over to iTunes and rate subscribe and review the podcast and I'll catch up with you next week
1: instant glam visit impressbeauty.com slash press on and use code press on 25 at checkout for 25 percent off impress manicure and press on falsies hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter that's why i teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create pretty litter its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80 percent less than clay litter